welcome to episode 42 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. That's right, the Nerd Culture Podcast is the meaning of life. Yay. For With us. me are the NCP crew, Richo. No, today I want to be known as Richo Apocalypse. That's fair enough. Luke. Today I'm known as Deep Luke. Nice. And Crystal. And yes, I'm here too. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got to give yourself a moniker. He's right, he's Dave Apocalypse, I'm Deep Luke. Can't you be Crystallian or something like that? No. Crystal Waters? Crystal Waters. 100%. Oh, please. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have one name that says it all. <laughs> like Madonna and Martiga? Oh, it's getting worse. <laughs> it is getting worse. Let's move on. <laughs> before it gets, uh, before we start breaking into some... Move oh, under my God. feet. So. I was trying to avoid that. But that's all right. Okay, so for this episode, we've got a dust jacket on Robopocalypse, which was suggested to us by... Uh, one of our listeners, Kaylee, and we've also got a follow-up to our short stories uh, segment that we did a couple of episodes back. This time, the short stories were suggested by you, the listener. So, uh, really, really cool. But before we get to that, I just want to make an announcement. It's very important, very exciting. Uh, no Culture Podcasts have actually joined the Big Top Network. The Big Top Network is a collection of podcasts, currently Australian podcasts, and hopefully soon some international ones as well that have band together to uh, basically help each other out, sort of, you know, um, share ideas, uh, do crossovers, and uh, basically just support each other um, in their endeavours. It's, uh, it's an awesome initiative, and uh, we're really proud to be part of it. Uh, so some of, the, some of the podcasts that are on the network currently are Watch a Podcast, Guy Fi, Horror Camp, Geek Speak, Super Podcast, Death Rocket Podcast, and last but not least... Our good friends, the Black Panel. Um, so you can check out their, uh, the Big Top Network at facebook.com forward slash Big Top Network. Um, there's some great shows on there, especially ours, of course. And uh, but uh, check them out and uh, support them as, um, as as best you can. And uh, we're really excited. Yay, we're joining the circus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's got an awesome logo. Have you seen the logo? No. That's awesome. <laughs> you always wanted to run away and join the circus, didn't you? I didn't need to run away. You know, <laughs> That's right. Say, hey, here's my resume. I can do this, this, and this. That's right. All you needed to do was wait long enough to get onto a podcast and then for that podcast to be included in Big Top. And now you can honestly say that you have run away and joined the service. No one can say that I don't plan ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I'd like to actually, we should thank the Big Top guys for actually inviting us to join their yeah. uh, network. That's pretty awesome, actually. It is very awesome. And uh, it's it's actually nice to know, too, that uh, there are people out there listening and appreciating what we're doing and inviting us to cool stuff like this. Somebody noticed us. <laughs> but we don't have now Zoidberg is the popular one. Uh, awesome stuff. And just one more thing I just want to point out. Uh, I was actually on an American podcast a couple of days ago. Uh, the boys from ECN Podcast, or Electric City Nerds, which is an awesome name, mm-hmm. uh, were kind enough to let me hang out on the show. Um, I Skyped in and uh, basically took over, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was uh, really, really cool. Uh, we talked, you know, your standard sort of Australian stuff, drop bears and stuff. Um, and uh, they were they were completely blown away by the fact that uh, I was... I was calling from the future. (laughs) (laughs) That is uh, awesome. Awesome uh, bunch of guys. Um, They're a lot of fun. Check them out. Um, They've got other podcasts as well. They've actually got one whole podcast devoted to Lost. They're like, they're really watching Lost from the start and going through it and discussing it. So that's pretty cool. (laughs) You can check them out at ecnradio.com. And hopefully we'll get them onto our show uh, sometime in the future. 
So without further ado, let's move on with the show. It's got an awesome episode. I know you're handing out for it. Uh, so first up, we've got Dust Jacket. As like I said before, this uh, this Dust Jacket is uh, Robo Apocalypse, which is suggested by Kaylee Snow Breedlove. Uh, so awesome. Thank you very much for suggesting this book. Take it away, Captain Dust Jacket. <laughs> So, Robo-Apocalypse, this is the book that's actually been causing quite a stir at the moment in the science fiction world, um, and in the science fiction cinema world as well. I mean, the book was written in 2011, already been uh, optioned for movies. It's in pre-production. Mm. Yeah, from uh, Spielberg and Co. at mm. DreamWorks. So, um, yeah, and it's this book's just been everywhere. Like, it's it's amazing. It's been quite, a, quite the sci-fi phenomenon. Um, just want to point out the film's going to start... My favourite Chris Hemsworth. How many Chris Man Hemsworths the are there? If he's your, if you've your favourite Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> well, he has, he has the Chris That's Hemsworth. That's a very good point. I apologise yeah. for my terrible grammar. Yeah, he, has, he has the Chris Hemsworth that he doesn't mind. The, <laughs> at least one Chris Hemsworth that he at, like, outright despises. But this one's going to start. His favourite of all the Chris Hemsworths. I know what he means. His favourite of all the Chris Hemsworths is, is Thor. And Chris, can I just say, can you please get a name that we can pronounce? <laughs> Chris Hemsworth. How, how hard is that? Every one of us stuffed it up. <laughs> I didn't. Hemsworth. See? <laughs> Moving on. It's written by Daniel H. Wilson, who is actually a uh, PhD uh, roboticist who'd written some, um, like, a robot survival guide for the robot holocaust. How to survive a robot uprising. Yeah. Um, and then. Obviously, from there has then translated into writing a fiction novel. But uh, I'm going to pass this over to David to give us the rundown. He's taking control. I'm giving him my Captain Dust Jacket T-shirt just for this episode. Well, unlike Archon, I am going to take control of the of the plot, but not the whole world. Uh, the base of the it, the plot is very very basic. Um, it's what if uh, a super intelligent computer program uh, gained sentience and decided to take over. Um, it's essentially that humanity then fights back and, and uh, there's grand war and wins so it's it's not giving anything away the book is actually told in a um, a sort of a diary uh, log sort of format uh, very similar to World War Z by uh, Max Brooks Z um, <laughs> Z <laughs> sorry and it actually it, it starts off with the humans have one uh, and it's, so it's, it's, it's basically uh, the character Cormac Wallace's uh, recollections of uh, the past events uh, combined with um, recordings made by all sorts of sources. It's sort of like a, like a found footage sort of uh, situation where you can surveillance cameras, robots, all sorts of stuff. So he, he basically puts together what, how he thinks the war went based on this information. I think it's the first book I've ever read that's in found footage format. That is a good point, actually. You, yeah, you, yeah. you were right. They hadn't actually thought that much about it, but it is. It's the found footage book equivalent. Yeah, it's, uh, and it works. It works pretty well. I mean, like I said, it, it's it's very similar to World War Z. Z. <laughs> and uh, um, so, if you read that, then you understand. You'd understand uh, the basic format of it. Um, it and but unlike um, World War Z, it sort of it Z. has uh, recurring characters that all do sort of tie in together. And in terms of the story itself. Yeah, it's nothing that hasn't been said before. It's, I mean, it's it's not it's not ridiculously original. I mean, it is essentially the plot of Terminator Two, <laughs> or the, you know, the Terminator universe. Um, but 
that doesn't detract from it. That's fine. It's it's uh, Daniel H. Wilson's uh, take on that sort of story. And uh, like Richo said, he actually is a PhD in robotics. Uh, so when he talks about the tech, it's pretty impressive. It really is. It's, it's a real world or possible futuristic tech. Um, it, the, the main the recurring characters that I mentioned, are, uh, like I said, Cormac, who's actually uh, compiling the story, uh, Matilda Perez, who's a uh, well, she starts off as ten, and by the end of the story, she's twelve. Uh, girl who's the daughter of a congresswoman, uh, who has uh, like quite a few uh, humans uh, during the course of the story has gotten uh, has been given cybernetic implants by um, Archon, who we'll get to in a second. Uh, but she, uh, but uh, during the procedure, it was interrupted, and so she can actually control the cybernetics instead of them controlling her. So she becomes very important uh, to the story. Uh, Namura, uh, who's a Japanese uh, repairman from a, a in a factory, uh, he's a sixty-five-year-old man um, who's basically just knows everything there is to know about uh, electronics, and he manages to uh, create a, a bastion of uh, survival in uh, Tokyo. Nine O Two, who is a freeborn humanoid robot, so. Um, after uh, or during the course of the war, the war is started by a pulse uh, generated by generated by this super intelligent program um, that basically takes control of all the computers uh, and robots and stuff like that. So it's it's in the future. So there's actually robot servants and stuff like that. Um, but there's during the course of the war, there's a second pulse, um, and that pulse uh, allows some of the robots to actually become sentient themselves, and they're, they're called the freeborn. And uh, he's one of them. In fact, I think he's the first one. And Lurker, who is a 17-year-old internet prankster geek. Uh, probably the, the, the type of person who would send death threats to Dan Slot, as we mentioned in a previous episode. Or <laughs> the type of person who Mark Miller would uh, <laughs> have tracked down. He's just an absolute scumbag. Uh, but through self-sacrifice, he uh, creates a, a pretty major turning point in the war. And this is all kicked off by uh, Arcos. Um, who I mistakenly called Archon at one point. I apologise. Uh, but Arcos, who is the the, the rogue AI. Um, so uh, he's, uh, after the 14th iteration of his program, uh, he gains sentience and decides, or not he, it, gains sentience and decides that uh, the best way to further his knowledge is to take over. So it's a, you know, that's fair enough. I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> but, but uh, and then he uh, creates the war and starts to, to kill a whole bunch of humans. It's important to note that he doesn't want to wipe out humanity, otherwise he could just detonate all the nuclear bombs around the world. He actually wants to uh, save humanity from itself um, and all that sort of you know, yeah. high, high noble sounding stuff. It's a very Ozymandias thing. He wants yeah. to create a enemy that will unite all of humanity to fight against. So that's basically it in a nutshell. Um, so uh, I'm really glad that we, that we read this book. Um, I, actually, I had heard of it uh, before... Kaylee recommended it because it has a really striking front cover. The front cover is awesome, um, and of course I'd heard about the um, a movie adaptation that was coming. So uh, I finally got a chance to read it. Now um, um, it's a nice, easy read. Um, I had it read uh, fairly quickly. It only took a, a number of hours. It's not it's not very long. So so one of the reasons I'm glad that I read it was for the character Nomura. Um, it's it's uh, he's one of one of many characters in the book, but I just found Nomura. It's just to be it's very excellently written in terms of characterization. He he was just really really cool, <laughs> really cool. Just the stuff the stuff that he does in the the no nonsense no fashion that he gets goes about to do it. Um, I, I just thought it was really 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 groovy, and uh, he really made the book for me. I, I every part he was in was cool, um, and the other characters as well are all you know of varying degrees of of coolness. Uh, but for that, I'll switch over to Richard. 
Yeah, there's actually substantially more characters in this book than even the ones that you've listed there. Um, there's a, a subplot involving Lonnie Wayne Blanton and um, uh, the Asage Indian Nation, who um, at a place called Grey Horse actually set up the Grey Horse Army, and they become the army that then marches um, on Arcos's stronghold, which is up in Alaska. Um, Lonnie Wayne's son is also another character who is a soldier in Afghanistan. There's a couple in New York who are performing sort of urban warfare tactics and things like that. But um, look, my, my biggest problem with this novel, and it's something I find with a lot of these kind of books, it's a very popularist thing, probably since certainly since the 80s onwards, to write books with these ensemble casts where you're jumping backwards and forwards all the time between the characters. It's, it's very rare to find a book that does that and makes all of the stories interesting. And I think that's where this book suffers. Um, a lot of the stories just didn't really grab my attention and really weren't all that, you know, re really didn't tell me anything that couldn't have been, you know, maybe covered in one of the other characters. Um, the first four you mentioned are Cormac, Matilda, uh, Nomura, and uh, 902. I think those are the four really interesting stories in this book. Um, I wish 902 had come into it a lot earlier. Mm. Um, he ex he doesn't come into it almost until about... It's 340 pages. He doesn't come into it until almost about 280 or thereabouts. Mm. Um, I wish he'd come into it a little bit earlier because, yeah, because that, that story could have been interesting. Um, I actually think Matilda's is probably the most moving story. Mm. Um, especially, um, she ends up in a concentration camp where they do the experiment on her. And her escape from that with her brother and with her mum helping her out, I think is actually quite a moving chapter of the book um, and I agree with what you were saying Nomura's story is absolutely fascinating I would have loved to have seen more of those stories hmm. and maybe less of some of the other stories that we get and maybe have those stories fleshed out a bit um, you, you get sort of you'll read a chapter and then at the end of the chapter Cormac will give you sort of like a, a summary of the chapter and a little bit of this is what happened next and a lot of the time when I was reading that I'm getting to those things and thinking well I want to see that I want to see what you've written here actually acted out hmm. um and um but yeah but certainly i think those four characters were the standout features in the book definitely i confess i actually didn't finish the novel and i didn't finish the novel for this reason which is it wasn't going anywhere or i didn't feel it was going to go anywhere that um i couldn't actually predict i got to about page 250 so 190 pages off the end and it just wasn't the, the story and the plot wasn't going anywhere that i felt i hadn't seen before and there hadn't been enough surprises in the previous 250 pages to convince me otherwise and it sort of sounds um, interesting that 902 gets introduced after that point mm. 902 should have been introduced far earlier from what you guys are telling me far earlier into the proceedings and should have been more about him and Matilda um, I also think taking it right back to a year before the war starts to introduce all the characters if you've got that many characters and that many storylines to set up that's a big mistake You've actually got to get us into the war itself and then and actually choose a point of view to stick through. Don't just have Cormac go, um, I'm going to tell it as it happened. Um, actually go, nah, find the emotional core. The split narrative, the ensemble cast, didn't actually work because the, ense the ensemble isn't an ensemble. Hmm. It's a, basically a collection of characters that sort of weave in and out but don't actually come together. There's actually nothing particularly refreshing about the robots themselves you could replace them with vampires or zombies and it would still kind of work yeah um it's not a bad novel i've read far worse uh, earlier last year mm. um 
we actually did iRobot. Mm. Um, and really, I think I think Asimov, and I know we rave about Asimov all the time, but there's a reason for that. But I think Asimov really has the first and last word on everything you'll ever need to know about robot stories. Um, and the psychology of robots and the philosophy of robotism and, and so on. Um, so there isn't really a lot here that I wouldn't get from reading Asimov and certainly get it better written and more complex than that. But I, I agree with what you're saying. It is a popularist novel and it will make for, I'm, I'm sure, a very entertaining movie. It's very cinema- cinematic, isn't it? it? It is. Well, it's really, it's really a plot. It's mm. a plot written down with a little bit of characterization thrown in, but... It, 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 it more reads like a screenplay that's translated into a novel than a novel that they're translating into a screenplay. Just on what you were saying about the ensemble cast, I kept sort of comparing it to John Birmingham's World War 2.0 because that's another book that has a, a, cast, a cast of thousands of characters. And I found... That book actually has like a list of the characters at the yeah, end. It's insane. I found that... Um, Robo-apocalypse, I found I could keep track of the characters much easier than in World War 2.0. Having said that, I, I think World War 2.0 is a far superior novel, even though I had to keep flipping back to the front to follow the characters. By the time you get into it, you, you don't have to do that after a while. I also thought it was interesting how it was put together like a found footage sort of book. I do wish he'd taken that to the limit, though, because some, uh, some of the chapters in there taken from interviews, so recorded interviews, and the interviews went into far too much detail. Like people were remembering which foot someone used to kick the robot's knees in and what colour the mop bucket was. And if you're in a situation where you're fighting for your life, you don't remember those sorts of little details. And I felt that it took me outside of the story more. Oh, it would have been better if maybe if those had been recorded pretty much similarly, but had he said they... He got it from uh, security footage or something. That way he could have put it that much detail in and it would have been more believable. Um, but overall, I've, I'm not a big fan of apocalypse stories anyway, so it wasn't really my cup of tea. It was very readable and uh, entertaining in parts, but, but not really my cup of tea. I would have liked a lot more of Arcos because early on, Arcos comes online and then just declares that he's robot god. Mm. And that there's, he makes a statement that there's been earlier versions of him and that they killed off those versions. I think if that actual story had made up the first part of the book before the war, uh, I, I think it would have worked better for me because I'd have a greater understanding of Arcos and why he's doing what he's doing. Because he just kind of comes online and goes straight to I'm Robot God. And I think maybe a little bit more of the philosophy of that and how he reaches that conclusion might have worked for me. And I look at, say, comparisons between, say, Hell in 2001 where Hell goes through a whole series of experiences that lead him to the point where he's he, he does what he does and then has to be shut down. All right, but at the end of the day, what did we all think? Let's start with David, since he got the ball rolling. Um, like I said at the start, I'm glad we read it. It was uh, it was an enjoyable read. Um, it's, uh, it is nothing that hasn't been done before, and I actually do think that World War Z is a, a superior book. Say so it. <laughs> Um, you not only do it, do it, so you do that. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, but it was, it, I hadn't read it before, and um, you know, it was an opportunity to do it, and I am really, really thankful uh, to Kaylee for suggesting it, and uh, I am actually quite looking forward to the film. I'm very interested to see how this is going to work. Only because um, Chris is in it. As a film, and not just because Chris is in it. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so I get this uh, 3.5 looks. Luke? Um, I agree pretty much with what everyone said. I give this two looks. Crystal? As I said before, 
but apocalypse stories aren't really my cup of tea, which is odd because I have a recurring dream where it's the end of the world. Uh, not not a scary one. It's it's kind of a peaceful thing, maybe because you know don't have to do anything anymore. We have to sort of start something new. I don't know, but um, yeah, not really my cup of tea. Uh, it was an easy enough read, and and uh, some of the characters were quite entertaining. My favourite character being the Japanese man, Namura. Namura. Um, I give it two and a half licks. Yeah, look, I have to agree pretty much with what everybody said, but especially with what David said. Um, this is a book that I think will actually translate much better into a film, which is rare. Please don't make it a found footage film. You know, they probably will. That's mm. the way to go these days. But yeah, I think because it because it reads on a very on a very superficial level, you know, it's it's just at that plot level, and so I think it'll translate a lot better into a movie. Um, yeah, I'll give it two and a half looks. So there you go. That was Robo Apocalypse. Did I get that right? Robo-pucalypse? No. Yes. That was Robo-pucalypse. Uh, thank you very much, Kaylee, for your recommendation. That was fantastic. And um, please, if anybody else has any recommendations, any books you feel that we should review, any classics that we're missing out on, or anything new that you've picked up that excites you, please let us know, and we will give it the once-over nerd culture podcast style. Thanks, guys. Coming up next, it's more Dust Jacket. That's right, the old Dust Jacket episode, as we look at your recommendations for which short stories we should have read but haven't. Okay, the short stories follow up as chosen by you, the listener. Um, like I said, we got uh, quite a few responses, uh, most of them by Twitter, which is pretty cool. But uh, we're going to start off with Richo and his ridiculously hard titled story. <laughs> I'm going to recommend that the story is called Talon Akbar Orbis Tertius uh, by George Louis. George Louis Borges. It's Borges, you I think? think? I think it's Borges. I think it is Borges. You think I would have remembered because we studied him for about a month at university. It's Borg. Borgs. Borgs. <laughs> George Borgs. Resistance is futile. That's Resistance right. is a philosophical standpoint. Absolutely. <laughs> nice. Uh, and this story, uh, this story was actually recommended to us by Emmett O.C. Well, the first thing I want to say is thank you, Emmett O.C., for recommending this story because, honestly, this is brilliant. Now, I, I admit I'm a Borges fan anyway, and I had read the story before, but it was a very, very long time ago. So you've given me the impetus to go back and read this again, and to actually read several of the other stories in uh, Labyrinths, which is the book that this is collected in. So thank you, Emmett. You've made an absolutely fantastic choice. Um, to explain, Clon Ukbar Orbis Tertius, it actually begins with Borges himself and um, uh, one of his writer friends uh, discussing an entry in... Um, a translated encyclopedia for a fictional country called Akbar. What they discover is that uh, Borges' version of the encyclopedia actually doesn't have the entry at all, but his friends does. And this starts them on a sort of interesting quest to find out what Akbar and uh, Talon, which is also mentioned in the encyclopedia, what they are, um, and where this bizarre entry that's only in one version of this encyclopedia came from. He Borges goes into quite a bit of detail about the philosophy of the world, um, and what but what they discover through um, just by chance really a letter a letter is discovered uh, in a sort of postscript to the story that basically Talon and Akbar were created by a secret cabal of intellectuals um, who over the course of about two centuries basically created originally a fictional city but then 
um, about 100 years into the project, um, an eccentric um, American millionaire tells them that they're not thinking on a, a big enough scope. And so he actually has them create an entire world called Orbis Tertius. But what happens, what happens is this fictional world starts to actually manifest in the real world. So um, objects from the fictional world actually start appearing in, you know, in weird places. And bit by bit, the world starts to become Tulun and Akbar. Um, and it's really, it's quite an amazing sort of philosophical story. Like it really has, has me sort of thinking because what, what, what um, Borges is sort of showing is it's, the story is very much a metaphor for the way that ideas are actually influencing reality. But he um, and he wor he works on uh, the philosophy of a philosopher called uh, George Berkeley, who had this idea that uh, sort of questioned whether things actually exist or not, unless they're being perceived. So if you stop perceiving something, does it therefore no longer exist? And in Berkeley's case, he thought, well, the om omnipresent perception of God assures that therefore everything exists all the time because God is always aware of them. But um, Borges in uh, Akbar basically says. Their philosophy is based on this, but without the actual presence of God. But what really fascinates me about this story is that the story itself actually blurs the line between uh, reality and fantasy, between fiction and non-fiction. There are the most interesting one I think is he um, mentions a writer Silas Han Silas Haslam, and his book A General History of Labyrinths. Now Silas Hansen doesn't exist. Uh, the book doesn't exist. However. The book has actually been cited in actual, like, reputable scientific journals and things as existing. <laughs> so once again, what we're seeing is outside of the story itself is this blurring of reality in the real world. And apparently that's now been picked up by, um, there's, there are websites and other writers who have actually, like, created sites about Akbar and Tertius, uh, sorry, Orbis Tertius and things like that. So what we're seeing is really in, in our world, the actual sort of manifestation of a lot of the ideas that Borges has in this story. So, so does this dude have his own wiki page? Uh, well, Borges is actually... He's dead. He I know Borges does, but yeah. does this fictional dude... <laughs> his I book? don't know. That'd I don't be awesome. know, to be honest with you. But the, fact, <laughs> the fact that his name and his book have actually been mentioned in actual like scientific journals and things That's is pretty like, amazing. So, um, yeah, so look, um, the story really... The story is, is in, in its simplest form, is just the philosophy of the world... And then the fact that the world is, you know, sort of then sort of becoming part of reality. Um, but the philosophical questions that that poses, I think, is what makes this such a standout story. And it is, like, literally, it is brilliant. It is such an amazing story. So, once again, Emmett, thank you very much for recommending this. And I do recommend this to anybody, everybody. It's, it really is quite incredible. Now, I've got to mention at the start that we're actually we're not going to cover every single story that was uh, suggested to us because there was quite a few who have got limited time. Um, but uh, I just I just picked you know picked the ones out of the out of the list for us to cover. So thanks for that, Richard. Very cool. Um, it is a cool. It is very very cool story. Mm. It's really really good. I've never actually read any Borges or book or whatever you pronounce it um, <laughs> previously. But yeah, uh, let's move on to Young Luke with the truth. Is a cave in the Black Mountains by Neil Gaiman. Uh, this was suggested to us by Geek of Oz. Um, okay, uh, this is actually a fairly recent short story. It was um, done as part of a collection between um, Neil Gaiman and Al Sorrentino, and fortunately I can't remember the title off the top of my head. 
of that actual anthology, but that it was done for that, and it was then published on the net for fifty-two stories. Um, the it's actually quite a quite a simple little um, two-hander. The story is in fact about a dwarf in the service of uh, this unnamed king, who hires um, an elderly reaver um, to help him track down this cave this cave in this place in this Black Mountain where um, it is rumoured that um, immense gold is meant to exist. And by doing so, he can get the gold, take it back to... It's never actually made clear whether it's giving it... Not just giving it to the king and to that the king's army so the king can go overseas. Um, I actually saw parallels to Richard I, so I kind of thought... There were, and there was a, a reference to helping the king out. Do they sing a song about cleaning the dishes? Mm. God, I hated that song. Moving on. <laughs> No, to answer your question. Um, uh, so, uh, and, but it's, like a lot of Game of Tales, it uses actually one of his themes, which is the um, the thing that you're actually going to find is, the thing that you're literally going to find is not the thing you eventually do find or may not even want to find in the end. And without giving this away, because the main character, told from the main character's perspective, the main character has secrets that he keeps um, from the Reaver uh, to do with himself and to do with the Reaver as well. Um concerning stuff uh, concerning stuff that's happened and I don't want to give it away because um, it is actually quite nice quite touching particularly the final moment in the cave um, but the, yeah there's, there's the... touching in the cave <laughs> well <laughs> funnily enough yes there is but uh, not in the way that you're thinking how do you know what I'm thinking yeah, because yeah. you're you because <laughs> <laughs> your mind always goes there so, in the end um, <laughs> so I actually saw um, Peter Dinklage playing um, the part of the main dwarf because you know both both very smart both quite secretive and um, both having their own agendas I thought hmm. there were parallels between the dwarf and um, Tyrion Lannister um, from Game of Thrones um, it's quite an effective little tale works on the simplicity um, but also um, there is something else going on not necessarily in terms of the plot but in terms of what's going on in the themes there I think the, the main character is quite good and I like some of the the little foreshadowing that goes on um, one of the early scenes involves them meeting a wise woman who actually predicts the future or their future um, by reading their palms and tells them things that they might not necessarily hear or want to hear and then of course the subversion of that is what happens at the end a cute little tale quite dark in places but um, certainly worth the read awesome thanks Luke and thanks Geek of Oz for the suggestion uh, next up we've got Crystal Crystal's actually got two by the Frederick Brown uh, the first one is Answer, uh, suggested by Jason Franks. And the second one is Earthmen Bearing Gifts, suggested by Sean Johnson. The the initial thing you notice about both of these stories, uh, Answer in particular, that they're very short. <laughs> Answer literally takes about 30 seconds to read, however, leaves you a lot to think about. Um, Answer would be my favourite of the two because it's a... Uh, I don't know which came first, but it, it, it's basically it's Deep Thought. The yeah. evolution of Deep Thought, uh, the... Uh, people uh, combined the might of uh, I forget how many planets nine, the word the number 90 comes into mind but I think it's 90,000 90 million I, don't, I can't remember oh. but lots of planets combined the might of those planets to create the power and technology to create this all-seeing all-knowing computer so they could ask them the ultimate question is there a god I won't spoil the ending but uh, it's a fascinating read let me say that it is hilarious I love it. <laughs> the other one, Earthmen Bearing Gifts. 
slightly longer read. I'd say probably take a minute and a half to read. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's basically a staple of Brown's work. Isn't yeah. it? it's, it's quite um, short. It's, 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 and, and it's engaging from start to finish, which is a good thing for uh, whether it's a, it takes you a minute and a half to read or a, a month and a half to read. Um, it's, this is about uh, a dying civilization on Mars. Uh, the, the, their civilization has evolved to the point where their their social uh, sciences uh, have evolved to the point where there's there's no crime in their cities. Uh, people all love each other and life is pretty peaceful and wonderful. However, they have no physical sciences, so they can't help themselves uh, prolong their own civilization. Um, they can't help save their own dying world. They have been able to monitor Earth for quite some centuries telepathically and they can see that uh, Earth has, while well, they still have crime and and wars, they, they have evolved their sciences to the point where they may be able to help the Martians so they're looking forward with eager anticipation at first contact which is a automated ro- rocket that will land on Mars and uh, again I won't spoil the ending but uh, it, it, it's, it makes a point and it makes you think. Cool. Yeah, both both very good stories. Well, thanks, Crystal, and uh, thanks again, Jason and Sean. Yeah, thanks, Jason and Sean. It's stories that I hadn't come across before, and uh, not sure I would have if you hadn't pointed them out to me. So. And it only took you a grand total of two minutes to read them. <laughs> well, I know, you talk about time-saving. Yeah, they are, they are awesome. But having said that, I mean, you know, that's not the best thing about them. They, they do stick in the mind and make you think about them later. It's, it's amazing that he's able to compact all of that into such a short couple of stories. So that's impressive skill. I think, I think he's a genius. Okay, so finishing up with me and uh, my two. Uh, both of mine were suggested by the same person, Mr. Matt Hughes. Uh, so thank you very much, Matt. They are both Stephen King short stories. Uh, one's Survivor Type and The Jaunt. Um, now I just want to start by saying um, I, I'm, I chose I actually chose to, to cover these stories because I... Uh, like Matt, obviously, I, I think that um, Stephen King, I think his strengths lie in his short stories. Actually, his short stories are better uh, than his uh, quite long novels. When David says choose, he means none of us were allowed to. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> pick, I pick to the stories for everybody based on their strengths and weaknesses. Um, are you saying I can't read long stories? Oh, that's not what I'm saying at all. I don't want, I don't what, want a divorce. What you see here is the totalitarian nature of the culture podcast. Um, yes, yeah, so I actually really, really enjoy Stephen King's short stories. Well, most of them anyway. I mean, there are a couple of dud ones, but uh, for, the, for the most part, he does very, very well. And uh, these are two examples of uh, a couple of his best. Um, Survivor Type is the story of a disgraced surgeon who has shipwrecked onto an island and when i say island it's basically just a jumble of rocks in the middle of the ocean it's uh, he, he basically he can spit across it um it's there's no vegetation and no animal life and uh, uh but he does have with him um quite a lot of uh drugs i think it's uh, heroin off the top of my head that he was planning on smuggling um he's not the nicest man in the world uh and uh, it's told in sort of a diary form that he's keeping to sort of keep himself sane in, in, before it, uh, in, for when he gets, uh, he'll destroy the diary when he gets rescued. Needless to say, being a Stephen King short story, uh, he has a bit of a misfortune and, uh, and is finding it hard to find food uh, to eat. Um, and during the course of uh, trying to kill a seagull, um, he uh, breaks his ankle 
and uh, being a surgeon, he realizes that this it's, it's quite a bad break and there's, there's nothing to fix it. And so he's going to have to amputate it. So he's going to have to self-amputate. So he dopes himself up, takes off the foot. And uh, then because he hasn't eaten for a, a good 12 days, he thinks, uh, I'm going to eat my foot. Um, so, oh. yeah. <laughs> and he's also, it's also raw because he's got nothing to cook with, which is awesome. <laughs> anyway, so, so because uh, he doesn't get rescued anytime soon, um, and he's starving, uh, he decides that uh, he's um, desperate enough to start amputating uh, his other foot and eventually amputates his legs and uh, cooks. He actually finds some wood um, and uh, cooks and eats them as well. And uh, ends with him being uh, quite insane. Gee, I can't imagine why. <laughs> and uh, eating his fingers, which taste like lady fingers. <laughs> It's good stuff. It's um, it's uh, you're a sick man, Stephen it's, King. It's it's uh, it's it's kind of predictable. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to see what's going, where it's going to go from the moment he cuts off his foot. But it's it's, it's enjoy the ride sort of thing. Mm. I would just like to point out uh, what I'm actually seeing here. Whilst you're doing that review, uh, Dave's got this you know quite jubilant look of glee on his face <laughs> as he talks about the story, and Crystal, who's sitting not you know. 10 centimetres away from him looks like she's about to throw up at any minute. The juxtaposition is really what I find quite interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way you say it's quite predictable from the minute he cuts off his foot. No, I wouldn't have predicted that he's going <laughs> to eat the rest of himself. Okay. I, I see where you're coming from. King's strength as a writer isn't necessarily that he has original ideas, but he has a wonderful sense of character. Yeah. And it's that, that character that carries you through a lot of his stories. So yeah. I can certainly see really, that here. Really cool. He's, he's the master of the twist. Yeah. Um, actually, no. Edgar Allan Poe is the master of the twist. But Stephen King is right up there. <laughs> um, the second story is The Jaunt, like I said. Basically, uh, uh, sometime in the, the near future, teleportation is created uh, by this eccentric sci- sci- scientist. Um, you do get the eccentric scientist's story as well, but that's it's not as interesting. But... Uh, so basically, he invents teleportation quite by accident and decides to call it jaunting based on his favourite book, Stars My Destination. So obviously he has good taste in literature. Um, <laughs> and, the, and the story is being told by the father of, of a family, a typical nuclear family, it's, it's mum, dad, daughter, son, um, who are going, they're going to take their first jaunt. Um, the father's done it quite a few times, um, uh, but uh, this is the first time for the family. So to sort of alleviate their concern... Um, even though it's, it's perfectly safe, he, he wants to. He sort of tells them the history in order to sort of get them excited. Um, that turns out to be a horrible mistake uh, because even though the jaunt process itself is fine, um, if you're asleep, if you're conscious, it's not instantaneous for you. It's actually an eternity. Um, so if if you're if you're asleep, it's all good. You go through. There's no ill effects in any way, shape, or form. But if you're awake. You experience the eternity of the universe, and there's no there's no set. Uh, they haven't really figured out exactly how long you last in the void, in the nothingness. Um, so he's telling this story, and he makes the mistake of he doesn't specifically say that, but he does say that um, uh, that the mice that were basically the animals that were tested on and um, and uh, stuff uh, die essentially. And so uh, his son, being the, the the rascal that he is. Um, decides to hold his breath during the sleeping gas part, and so then when they get to the other side, uh, they're actually they're going to Mars. There's a colony on Mars. When they get to the other side, um, he's he's the, the father of the son learns firsthand exactly what happens. I won't ruin it for you because uh, even though I mean yes he goes insane, but 
So it's things what he, how he reacts when he wakes up on the other end, uh, when he gets to the other end, um, is hilarious <laughs> and uh, and just uh, just quite horrific. But just I think. So like, when, you, when you say hilarious, you actually mean it's quite harrowing. Yeah. Well, well, no, no, it's it's harrowing and horrific for the family. But I I laughed because I thought it was hilarious. Because you're a sick <laughs> man too. <laughs> there, there's that glee in other people's pain. Because I just have no, no, it's not glee in other people's pain. Because I just have no sympathy. I mean, they're only fictional characters, but I just have no sympathy for someone who intentionally goes against what they were told not to do. You know? So, I mean, I'm a horrible person. I, I apologise. Um, so, yeah, so another excellent story. And actually, funnily enough, also one of my favourites, The Jaunt. Um, a huge fan. Uh, I read it when I saw the title, The Jaunt, mainly because of Star's My Destination. I was like, oh, wow, I wonder if this is in, you know, involved in some way. And sure enough, it was. Uh, both of those stories um, uh, included in the Stephen King novel Skeleton Crew. And you can probably find them. You know, in other places as well, but uh, they're both in Stellar Skeleton Crew, which has been in print for a dog's age. Um, and like I said, they were both suggested by Matt Hughes, so thank you, Matt. Um, and thanks to uh, everybody. Um, that's that's it. That's uh, they're the ones that, uh, that we're going to cover. Like I said, there were there were more. Uh, so thanks to MNOC, Geek of Oz, Jason Franks, Sean Johnson, Matt Hughes, and to everybody else who uh, suggested a story as well. It's really awesome. If you want to hear the rest of them, you have to uh, jaunt while you're awake. So you've got all of eternity <laughs> to experience them. I don't suggest <laughs> doing that. That would be horrible. <laughs> jaunt for all eternity whilst listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. You'll be able to listen to all of our podcasts oh, over and over and over oh, again. Oh, the horror. <laughs> It'll drive Stephen you King, are you listening? That's a story <laughs> idea. <laughs> coming up next. Coming soon. So coming to Australian cinemas January 31, we get Movie 43, Flight and Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, movie 43 is a sort of a comedy compilation type movie. If, um, if I haven't seen movies 1 to 42, will this be a problem? I knew somebody was going to say that joke. <laughs> um, it, it looks absolutely awful. Check out the trailer. It looks it's just so, so bad. It's it Twilight a, level of bad. It's a spoofy. Yeah, it's a spoof sort of thing with a, with a cast of thousands. It's just, oh. It's just so and where's bad. Leslie Nielsen's in it? I don't want to watch they re, it. They reuse the sperm in the hair joke from There's Something About Mary. That'll give you an idea of how crap it is. Uh, Flight is Denzel Washington at his, uh, at his greatest, as always. He's always great. He's brilliant. Uh, and Zero Dark Thirty, of course, is the notorious uh, uh, Catherine Bigelow film about... Uh, the hunt for Osama Bin Laden so uh, I have zero interest in seeing this film I thought you were going to say Red October <laughs> uh, you see what I went there zero I did there. I see what you did Come on. I see what you did oh, I try my hardest for you people that was witty <laughs> <laughs> then on February 7 uh, we get Hansel and Gretel which hunters? Hansel 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 and Gretel <laughs> God I love that cut dude mm. um, yeah which Let's be honest, it looks pretty bad. And the cut, the cartoon recording there, infinitely better than some of the trailer for this film, which just looks... just looks like nothing. Mm. It looks like another Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter sort it of thing. It does. But it's, like, it's, like, it's like they're... But, but a lot more violent, with a lot more swearing. Snow and, White and the and, no, and none of the supposed wit, which is meant to be in Abraham Lincoln. Mm. Unlike the Looney Tunes cartoon that we just quoted, mm. which is genius. <laughs> yes. We also get Anna Karenina, uh, the, the classic Russian story. Uh, on the big screen, not not Android Karenina. No, unfortunately no, not. not. The, not the mashup story version. You know, I can think of a few other Russian stories that should be translated before the four hundred thousandth 
version of Anna Karenina comes out. Fair enough. You know, you know uh, the Russians did write more than one novel. <laughs> and they love their children too. That's right. <laughs> uh, and last, but certainly not least, I'm very excited, uh, Lincoln, um, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yes, we finally get Lincoln. I know. Awesome Seriously. choice for Lincoln, though. Yeah. It, Good, well he does look very impressive. I, I'm, I'm excited. I want to see it. I've heard some bad things, unfortunately, from friends who have already seen it from illegal downloading, which we do not endorse. Uh, but, hey, I'm still going to see it. Coming up next, the winner of our Spider-Man and uh, NCP t-shirt giveaway. Is it you? Probably. Well, it's not me because you told me I wasn't allowed to enter because I'm already on the show. Some kind of conflict of interest thing. So that was... I, I don't get it. <laughs> you don't that, get it. That, that was kind of... That's the whole point. You don't get it. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> that was kind of mean then when you uh, actually taunted him with the, dangling the prize in front of him. That's right. I kept stro- trying I to grab it. He kept taking it away. I can't believe I stroked it in front of him, if memory serves. <laughs> you know, that's just not right. <laughs> yeah, rubbing it on your um, you know, your armpit, under your armpit, and then beating him across the head with it. Just, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so glad he went with armpit. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you think it was going to go? Please, well, you're a PG him. show, thank you very much. Parental <laughs> guidance is recommended uh, for this show. Gold. Anyway. Uh, last episode, we asked our listeners to give us their best ofs for 2012 for a chance to win the Spider-Man hardcover by Brian Michael Bendis, uh, which I voted as the best comic of the year. We got the, we, we put the entries into a hat, picked out the winner, and the winner is Ben Kane. So Ben gave us his picks. Uh, his movie was The Avengers, and he says, Like David, I had a smile all the way through The Avengers. It was fantastic. Good man. Uh, for TV, he had Game of Thrones, which continues to kick butt. Uh, for a comic, he had Saga. Uh, it was the first Brian K. Vaughan series I've been able to read as the issues have come out. Such a great read. Absolutely. Mm. Fair enough. Totally agree with that. And for his event, he said, My event of 2012 was a different one. With the exception of a few random reads, I had not really read many comics. But before I had even been into the store, I won a Facebook competition with All Star Comics in around February, March 2012. During the trip to collect my prize, I was introduced to Astonishing X-Men by Mitch at All-Star, and then it started was become a new love in my life that is comics. That's absolutely awesome. It is awesome. When Ben is one of those new readers that we constantly hear don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well done, All-Star. You've sucked in another addict. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Um, and he didn't have a book. I don't, know, I don't think I actually read a novel. Bad Benny. More books in 2013. <laughs> yes, listen to our podcast and read all of the Dust Jacket books that we recommend. That's right. But, but he was introduced to comics, so... Yeah, was, look, that, that is... Great convert, so that, That's good. actually amazing. You know, it's always good to hear when new people take up the... Uh, let's call it a hobby and not an addiction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad he won, because now he's got one more book to, the, to add to the co- ever-growing yeah, collection. Cool. It is cool. We're supporting his new habit. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, well done, Ben. Send us your address, and uh, we'll send off the Spider-Man hardcover. Okay, so just to finish up... Uh, Don't forget you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com backslash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at nerdculturecast. Or leave a comment on any post on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. We need your votes. Without you, we are nothing. Vote for us. <laughs> I wouldn't go quite that far. I like, for us. I like how Richard went slightly uh, New York there. 
I felt that I needed to be a little bit more peppy because Luke was a little bit very droll with his readout there. So. <laughs> rate and review us on iTunes. We need your love. How deep is your love? Well, rate and review us and we'll know. <laughs> so that's it for episode 42. Thanks from me and thanks from the crew, Richo. I don't think it's pronounced Borg. Luke? Borges. I pronounce it Borges. Borges. Anyway, something like that. If anybody knows, please <laughs> write in. <laughs> Tell us. And Crystal? I demand that I am Froom Vondel. Clearly, then, the name that you've been telling us for the past few years has been incorrect. <laughs> also, Lies. Also, it's a name on your wedding certificate, because I saw it when I signed in the witness bit. So, <laughs> you've now quite fraudulent as well. Does that make David Mr. David Froom Vondel, then? <laughs> no, I want to be... Um, what's the name of the guy that actually creates the plant? Magic like, Thighs. Oh, Slarty Bartfast. That's David Bartfast. <laughs> no, he's magic size. <laughs> uh, bye. Bye, everybody. Network. Network.